Hi, it's Jesse, and this is a shout out to everyone who jumped on JoeFresh.com to get my limited edition matching family collection. It's been selling so fast. The baby romper, the kid set, and the dress are my obsessions for the summer. I am loving seeing them on your kids, and they're so affordable. The toddler dress is $16. That's why I bought 10 and smuggled them back into the U.S. illegally for my friend's kids. I shouldn't have said that on a recorded medium. Anyway, the Jesse Collection is out now in select stores and at joefresh.com. Get it before it's gone. Or before I'm gone. To jail. This week on Phone a Friend, it's our first mid-season banger! I went to a five-star children's resort and lived to tell you all about it. Jeremy Allen White has me parched and confused. Plus, the complete never-before-played-in-its-entirety conversation with Dan Levy that made international headlines. And that person said, wow, it's almost like you're a real man. And I thought, this isn't right. New Year, same elder millennial me. Let's do this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Girl, let's phone a friend with Jesse Cruikshank. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, my voice cracked. It's... I'm a little rusty. Welcome to Phone a Friend. I'm back. We're back. Happy New Year. New Year, same me, honestly. I'm Jesse Cruikshank. I'm just so happy to be back with you, phonies, for our first, what we are calling mid-season banger. So we're going to do a few of these little mid-season bangers before we get back to our usual format in season two. I'm going to be here on my own, just you and me, for a few intimate weeks. Just giving you a little life update, talking a little pop culture, and then playing you a few of my, and your, to be honest, your favorite conversations from season one, starting with the complete never-before-played-all-together-in-its-entirety conversation with Daniel Joseph Levy. Where, 
He says some very surprising, shocking things about our time at MTV that really blew up when this episode first dropped. I mean, headlines in People Magazine, Hollywood Reporter, New York Post, like everyone reported on this conversation with Dan Levy. So that is coming up. But first, how are you? I mean that. Like, please ask yourself that question because it has been a, a busy few weeks for all of us. How are you? How was your holiday? Did you go away? Did you see family? Was it restful? Was it stressful? Mine, I feel, really has been all of the above. And by the way, Mine is still happening. The holidays are still actively occurring in my home. My kids have three weeks off of school. That should be a crime to give three weeks off of school for any reason. And like, it was great for the first 1.5 of those weeks. But at this point, they're ready to go back. I'm ready for them to go back. My mom is here who, let's be honest, loves them more than anybody. She's ready for them to go back. Like, it is time. It is time. I will say, this was a much needed break for me. I didn't talk about this during our final episodes last year. I was really, truly like trying to power through. But the end of 2023 was very rough for me. I was so stressed with work. Like we had announced the comedy special taping. That was hugely stressful for me to just get that out and happening. My kids were sick with everything. Like literally flu, RSV, the most dangerous illnesses you can bring home, they brought home. And then I was so run down and stressed out. I just got all of the sickness all at once. Like I was so sick in December. Like could not get out of bed, deadbeat mom for a week, sick. And I only started to feel better the day we left for a vacation in Cancun, which by the way, when I posted pictures like in a bathing suit, so many of you were like, looking great, what's your secret? And I was like, coughing up blood for seven days, heart emoji, influenza does the body good. The body's back to normal, by the way. Few all-you-can-eat buffets and I'm back, baby. And I gotta say, our trip to the Nickelodeon, I can hardly say it without laughing, the Nickelodeon Hotel and Resort in the Mayan Riviera was all the healing I needed. Because how can one be stressed or overwhelmed or even sick when you're getting slimed? You know, you can't. You got to let it all go. Full disclosure, this is how this trip occurred. I want to let you all know. If you were following along on social media, here's the backstory for the phonies, an exclusive. We had another resort booked. And then Sunwing Vacations, who I work with, came to me days before and said, guess what? I said, what? They said, we can get you into a five-star property. And I was like, go on. And they were like, with top tier chefs, uh-huh. Stunning ocean views, mm-hmm. A private balcony pool, yes. And unprecedented access to SpongeBob. I was like, wait, what? Sorry, what did you just say? They said, we want you to visit the Nickelodeon Resort in Cancun. And my first thought, if I'm being honest here on Phone a Friend, was no thank you. Sorry. That doesn't sound like a dream vacation to me. I I get to go on vacation like maybe once a year. I did not want to go to the Nickelodeon Resort. I just felt like my kids don't know a lot of the Nickelodeon shows. Like they're not 
you know, lovers of SpongeBob, unlike Ariana Grande. Plus, it just scared me that this place was going to be so kid-friendly, I would have a terrible time. But it ended up being so kid-friendly that I had the best time, okay? Possibly the greatest vacation of my life. I'm going to just go on record and say it. Because the resort was stunning. It really was. The food was amazing. Drinks were great. Bar was fun. But here's my recent discovery as a parent. And that is, if your kids are taken care of on a family vacation, then you can actually enjoy your vacation. Like, I always think that I want to go to a nice place for adults and my kids can just deal, but that's backwards thinking, phonies. Like, if you are on a family vacation and your kids can, you know, there's things for them to do and kids clubs to go to and food they'll actually eat. And I know this sounds small and petty and inconsequential, but sinks and buffet counters that are at their height, you can relax. You don't have to lift them up to wash their hands every time or like see the food or, you know, fight them to Try tamales at the Mexican Fiesta-themed buffet. You can direct them to the Kids Height Butter Noodle Bar and enjoy your tamales in peace. That makes a difference. (laughs) It was literally, literally, this place is a five-star resort for children. So just imagine that. Like, we walked into the resort for the first time, and my three children were greeted with frozen green pina coladas with a gummy bear garnish, a cocktail called slime, that Rio Dre and Romy learned to order all by themselves at all the bars at all times. On our final day, I literally watched my two-year-old daughter bob up to the swim-up bar and just like float there like a beached whale in her water wings and said, slime, please. Slime, please. And in that moment, I thought, my work here is done. This is it. I've taught her all I know. My proudest moment as a parent. I mean, the whole thing was so much fun. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. So fun. We really were just like forced to relax and to let go of everything that had built up over the year. We reconnected as a family in a way that I think we rarely do during our busy, chaotic lives. And as a result, my kids were just so happy. And when my kids are happy, they're cool. You know what I mean? They're much easier when they are happy. And so I guess, you know, the solution is that I just need to serve them slime cocktails twice a day and all will be right in the world. Also, footnote, we did bring my dad, which I mentioned on our final episode of last year. I didn't know how it was going to go. Like, would it feel like a fourth child? Would he enjoy himself? My dad is 75 and here's how it went. My dad just did whatever the fuck he wanted to do. He would literally sit there reading the New York Times at the Paw Patrol water park. Just like Chase would be squirting someone and my dad was reading about stocks. You know what I mean? Unfazed, just doing his own thing at all times. Later in our trip, my dad made a reservation for one at the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles restaurant. Okay, he didn't want to go to the buffet we were going to. He liked the pizza at that restaurant, so he sat alone next to a life-size sculpture of Donatello, sipping a Cabernet, reading The New Yorker, and eating a pizza. A great time was had by all. 
We got home just in time for Christmas. My mom and dad came to our house. Evan's family was in town. And we just like, we hosted everyone. We had like a day to prepare and I didn't even feel the pressure. I was just so filled with slime and vitamin C. But like, it was casual. Every guest room was filled. Every pullout couch was out. All the air mattresses were in use. And honestly, I think that's exactly how I like it at the holidays. That's how I always want my house to be. Just, I like it full. I like it chaotic. I like to feel surrounded by love and by family. And secretly, I like my mom to be there so that I can kind of feel taken care of and I can act like a kid again. You know what I mean? Like, On Christmas Day, I barely lifted a finger. My mom made the breakfast and cleaned up the wrapping paper like moms are supposed to do. I didn't have to be a mom on that day. I haven't been a mom for the last two weeks. I'm sure she's in my house right now folding my underpants and doing my dishes. And I don't know how I'm going to go on when she leaves tomorrow. But I will be brave enough to try. So thank you for your prayers. So great few weeks for us like a much needed, just little break. And now I'm ready to dive back in. I have my comedy special taping in two months, March 9th in Toronto. If you haven't gotten your tickets, there's not a lot left. So get them now. It's like a one-time only, super special, intimate, hilarious night out with me. I would love to have you there. Um, And I made the ticket prices super affordable because, you know, I am not Adele in Vegas. Uh, You can get them at Ticketmaster or I've linked them in the description of this episode. Now, I am supposed to keep things tight in these mid-season bangers. Just in and out, little update, get to the interview, call it a day. But sometimes something might happen in pop culture that I cannot resist the urge to talk about. And when that happens, I might just need to talk about that one thing. My one thing this week, by the way, I, when I was pulling that sound effect, I got obviously had to watch the entire music video by One Direction. And I just like, I just couldn't help but think this was One Direction before they had sex. They were all so innocent and sweet and like wide-eyed. And then the minute they all had sex, the attitude changed. You know, it's a little too cool for school. But no, not in the One Thing video. They're dancing on the top of a double-decker bus with like scarves and vests. Just adorable British virgins. Highly suggest you revisit One Direction, anything off the first album. Virginal Harry Styles has an innocence that I miss, if I'm being honest. Okay, My one thing this week is a compact little five foot seven inch chunk of muscle with floppy hair and crystal blue eyes named Jeremy Allen White, who's officially become my first ever two-time subject of Calling All Thirsty Moms. Calling All Thirsty Moms. Jeremy Allen White is the new face of Calvin Klein, and by face, I mean crotch. 2024 is bulging up to be a great year. In the campaign video, he can be seen on a rooftop in New York City removing all of his clothes to do parkour in his underpants, as one does. He stops his workout only to stare deep into the camera, bend over to reveal his underbum hair, and slowly eat an apple. I would like to be that apple or that underbum hair. The only thing ruining this campaign for me were the thousands of DMs I received from you, yet again reminding me that Jeremy Allen White looks like my six-year-old son, Rio. Thanks for your messages. 
Rio also likes to rip off all of his clothes and inexplicably run around in his underpants, so they do have that in common. And this has been Calling All Thirsty Moms. Calling All Thirsty Moms. Yes, chef. And that's my one thing. Q5 Adorable Virgins. That one thing. Ooh, okay. Just kicking off the new year by lighting the Kardashian empire on fire. These mid-season bangers are going to be good. After the break, the conversation with Dan Levy that People Magazine called shocking, sad, and controversial. I mean, honestly, what more could you ask for? That's next. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We're back and let's get to the conversation that started it all. This podcast, I mean, that started this podcast with the man who was my co-host for five years on MTV, my close friend, my first guest on this show, Dan Levy. This is a conversation that sparked global headlines. Dan's revelations to me about what he experienced at MTV shocked a lot of people, made international news. And even if you've heard this interview back when it aired, I think it's worth revisiting now with that perspective. Because when I listened back this week, I was shocked by how unguarded we were. Like, he never talks about things like his personal life, but I kind of forced him to talk about it with me. And he did. And I just didn't know the rules. Like, I had never made a podcast before. I didn't know anyone would listen to it, let alone cover it in People Magazine. But, you know, Dan and I have known each other for a really long time. We've gone through some very formative things together. We are incredibly close. And we both clearly felt so safe and comfortable with each other that we really didn't hold back. So let's phone a friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. 
I am phoning Daniel Joseph Levy, and by phoning, I mean sitting in his living room, but we'll get to that. He has a new movie out January 5th on Netflix called Good Grief that he wrote, directed, acts in, and looks impossibly chic in, by the way. So many oversized coats. He was working on the movie at the time we spoke, so I thought, what better time to revisit this conversation, which was our first public reunion in over 10 years. Enjoy. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm so good. I was about to say. Can't be better than me right now talking to you. No. I was going to sing reunited. Can you clear that? Absolutely not. Okay. So we'll just stop it there. Yep. Thank you for reminding me Mm -hmm. what the rules are. This is my premiere Mm, episode. We don't want you getting sued. No. God, you're always looking out for me. I need to be transparent. The show is called Phone a Friend. Because mm-hmm. I'm supposed to phone someone for every for episode. Help. Well, when I like don't understand something, sure. I can phone a tween to explain oh. something. Like oh, if I okay. don't understand something, which is a lot of times, I can phone a stand. Yeah. But I am supposed to phone someone and I'm mm-hmm. currently sitting in your house. It's like a phone call. It's not a phone call, but well, we could get on our phone. We could and just sit across from each other. Which is <laughs> we have not be too more far off. Or I could just say, fuck it, this is my show. I'm just going to disregard the premise in the first episode. Let's do that. Okay. It's like as if you'd have never made it to Shit's Creek exactly. in the pilot. You're like, wait, wait, wait for the second app. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. Yeah. So I will be phoning people who are not necessarily my friends. Okay. But It's a very you, scary thing for me. Really? Yeah, phoning strangers. Oh my God, I thrive on it. I know, but we're so different so in that different. regard. So different. You're so comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Yeah. And I, I'm i like a clam. I just like, <laughs> I the shell goes down. Do clams open their shells? I, I don't even know. It's a I terrible analogy. No, it is. And, and I really never do been... want to talk about that mm-hmm. with you because that's so funny and mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And we would always be in such uncomfortable situations together. Mm-hmm. But you are my real friend. Mm-hmm. You are truly one of my oldest, mm-hmm. closest, longtime friends. I feel like you will always be one of the closest people in my life because of the formative Going years. Going through things <laughs> together. We're together. Yeah. It was our entire 20s, Absolutely. basically. Everything. And considering we're only 29 now— And it's true, because we were like, we worked together, off camera we were together, constantly together. The job kind of forced a family dynamic because it was so all-consuming that you, if you weren't going to hang with the people you were working with, you were kind of screwed. And can you imagine if we didn't like each other? Well, also just the... (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. Well, here's the thing. I've known you for 17 years, Daniel Joseph. I always thought it was longer than that. Oh, thank you. 17 years, 2006. Mm -hmm. I know so much about you. And I also have so many questions that I have never been able to ask you that I've always wanted to ask you. So now that I have you strapped down to a hot mic, you Mm -hmm. can't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your own home. Yeah. You are going to be forced Forced to answer all of them. To confront hard truths. Work for you? Sure. (laughs) Hard truths. And there will be very few hard truths. Mm-hmm. I'll just put that out there. Or not. Okay. Or it could just be this entire interview is nothing but hard truths. It's going to take a Cut hard to the premise turn. changes. Your entire podcast is just called Hard Truths. Jesse Crookshank. Hard, hard Truths. truths. Mm-hmm. Hard Truths. Well, you are who I turn to for really hard. Hard. 
When you want hard mm-hmm. truths, you come to me. Barbara Walters, RIP, and you. And me. Yeah. When she passed away, RIP, I thought, mm-hmm. this is my moment. This is your opportunity. Hard truths. Okay. So I want to take you back to that time. But first, I realize that I am sitting with a global fashion superstar, icon, okay. legend, mm. icon. And this is not a visual medium. So for our listeners— I'd like to describe everything that you're wearing head to toe. You can do the same for me, head to toe, so we can create a vivid mental Had picture. I known this was happening, I probably would have put an outfit on. <laughs> no, you have an outfit on. Okay. Dan Levy. Mm. Cue music. Dan Levy is wearing, it's a disheveled denim. It's a, it's a raw denim. Mm-hmm. The knees, there's a hairy knee poking mm-hmm. out of the raw, the raw denim. It's on the bottom, there's a black sock. It's a charcoal gray sock. It's a charcoal gray sock mm-hmm. with a mohair. I think it's a fur. Faux. It's, it's a faux. It's definitely a faux. It's a faux mm-hmm. hair Birkenstock. Yeah. Black sandal. And then on top, we have a Canadian tuxedo happening. It is a raw denim uh, jacket. It's a clean white t-shirt. Mm-hmm. It is a jaunty cap. Baseball cap. Baseball cap. Sporty. Yeah. Absolutely. Off duty. You were just playing sports before this. I was. Mm-hmm. Baseball. Uh-huh. Oh, my I God. I came from the diamond. I saw the catcher's mitt out there, back mm-hmm. there. And uh, what would you call this? It's a sheer gray. Like a, yeah, like a gray. Frame. From. Optical frame from DLI. From DLI. Well, yeah. available now. Available always. Always at... <laughs> This this is, is dl.com. DL. Wow. Thank you. We didn't even pre-plan that. No, but. that was and it right off the bat too. Got that out of the way. Go ahead and describe my look. Jesse is wearing what I would describe as kind of a classic crookshank ensemble. Mm. It feels like a very sort of um it's a fun play on like what I know you to oh, a, really? a classic silhouette. An aged a high play. waisted uh-huh. I'm going to go with vintage. Yeah. Pair of Levi's. Absolutely it is, yeah. With a lovely um, floral coral. Uh-huh, it's a coral. Button down. Um, some iconic gold chains. Absolutely. I actually had to take remove a bangle remove some. for audio purposes. And we have other gold accessories. We have a classic cat eye and... We have a white. It's a Lululemon. I guess we'd sock. call that like a practical, like athletic sock. I'm sorry. It is Lululemon. I would call it a rich person's sock. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it looks very expensive. I put on my most expensive white white no athletic socks. Sock. Athletic mm-hmm. socks for you because I was also socks. playing sports uh, before this. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was a real thing. I know it really was. And I want you to appreciate more beauty. I'm going to show you a photo of us. I believe we're nightclubbing in 2007. I was going to bring this up. When you had talked about our friendship Uh on camera and off camera, my mind went straight to this night. Me too. So what are you wearing in this image? I will have to post this so people know what we're talking about. Um, I am wearing, it's either a marching band jacket or some kind of military jacket. I believe I was with you when you purchased that. Um, Dicton Market. I am also in a low-cut V-neck pale pink top man t-shirt. Oh my God, you remember the brand? I know. 
I can remember every piece of clothing I've ever worn. Stop. Yeah, it's like an almost, it's like a… It's a gift. It is a gift. Yeah. I was in a pair of spray-on um, <laughs> All Saints denim, skinny pants, so, skinny jeans. So tight. I don't hate it. No, actually, it's not the most embarrassing picture I could find. I just no. thought it was really illustrative of a time. It was. Because next to you, you can go ahead and describe my look. Well, you are in you are in a top that you wore to your audition at MTV. Absolutely. It's made from a scarf. Just Multiple scarves sewn yeah. together. Uh-huh. Handmade. Uh, with your signature belt. Large belt. Statement belt. Half the torso. Huge bangles. Huge. You're doing a, like, rock-on hand. <laughs> and oh your tongue's God. out. Oh, my God. I am. Thank you. And this is You just- had a lot of fun that night. Look how drunk I am in this picture. Well, I can remember exactly how drunk you were. At all times. I was drunk. When not on camera, I was drunk. You had a lot of fun that evening. Do you remember that evening? No, what happened? We don't need to get into it. No, tell me what happened. I don't remember. No, you children. I don't want to talk about it. Oh, my children don't care. They're not listening. (laughs) They don't even speak English. Well. What happened? You don't remember? No. Okay. Did I throw up somewhere? No, tell me what happened. No, you were. Did I make out with someone? Yeah. Who? Was his not my current husband? <laughs> not your current husband. <laughs> no, I don't think me. you were. Were you? With no, your I wasn't current with husband? my current. Husband. Okay, no. let's just specify yeah. that. No, I was very. I'm not single. kind of revealing on a no, podcast. I was very single. If oh my god! Would, I don't. Who did I make out? I find, I'm very protective of personal. Well, it's your podcast. It's you 2007. Cut this out. Oh my god! Jesse showed up later okay. than we did. Okay. To this party. Yeah. And I, at the time, was still kind of, I wasn't totally comfortable with my sexuality. It wasn't something that I was like, and it was also at the time of like the witch hunt, the gay witch hunt Mm. in terms of like blogs, people outing people. The Perez Hilton. And I was still kind of in that world where I was letting that define me, Mm. which is sad. Mm -hmm. So I remember seeing these, like, hot guys on the dance floor. (laughs) Next thing you know, you're making out with one of them. And I was thrilled for you. I'm thrilled for But I was also jealous. Oh, my God. What? I'm so mortified. What? So we continue dancing. I believe, what was the song that was playing at the time? I will remember this. It's Hilary Duff's Beat of My Heart. (laughs) No! And I, by the end of the song, you were being passed off... By the hot guy to his other hot friend. Oh, damn. And you were making out with the other hot friend. (gasps) Now, just for the clarity of everyone at home, you were very much an active participant. This was not any kind of an insidious thing. No, yeah. You were living for yourself. Absolutely. And I was rage jealous, (laughs) but also like thrilled for you. Oh, my God. Because not only were we having like a really great night out, but you were like, Really going right. for it. Well, I'm so happy you bring this up because really, look at me now. I've been with the same person for 15 years. Mm-hmm. There was a time where uh, we would go out, we would get drunk, and I would make out in alleys. Mm. I would make out in bars. I believe at one point you were kissing the one guy and and like had your hand behind Stop. his back, like holding the <laughs> hand of the other guy. I'm, I'm mortified. And Why would you ever be mortified about well, the belt? I would be I mean, thrilled. Thrilled. Thrilled to think I wish it was now. my story. <laughs> you had your moments eventually. 
I guess. But never like that. No. I was often, you would probably be like, where's Jesse? And I would be like outside of the bar in a back alley making out with mm-hmm. like a colleague or a stranger. Sure. You know? Mm-hmm. Different wow. times. Wow. Mm-hmm. Thanks for bringing that up. You're so welcome. <laughs> I, I am like, because that will never happen again. I am proud. Because I'm sort of sound like an elderly person, which I am. But now... I see kids in their 20s, and they're not doing that dumb shit. They're I think like, they are. No. Have you watched? Euphoria? Yeah. No, actually, I need someone to explain that to me. That'll be a future episode okay. of the podcast. Okay. Well, I'm glad that we went through that together. Mm. So let me take you back. Let's reminisce for a moment. I mm-hmm. want to take you back to a time where our interests included thrift shopping, mm. heavy drinking, mm-hmm. dancing. I actually only started drinking at MTV. Wow. Is that true? Yeah. You didn't drink in I didn't, I was never, I never touched really, I still have never had a cigarette. Ever? I don't do drugs. I don't, yeah. Wow. Wow. So really it was that period in your, in your life. Oh yeah. MTV completely corrupted me to oh, my core. It was dark. Yeah. Okay. So I remember every night after school, people were going to school. <laughs> after work. Every after night work, after work, people were going to yeah. a bar. And you and I would go out to like a weird restaurant after an after show taping and have a glass of Pinot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the first time we met was at the MTV audition in 2006. Can you paint us a picture of where you were at in your life at that time? I had just had a very kind of revelatory life shift. Mm. I was in a very not great semi-relationship on and off for multiple years that left me feeling very small. And I was generally quite anxious socially to begin with. And I knew that if I didn't do something quite active to change my fear of, so I mean, talking, going back to the conversation we had about like picking up the phone and cold calling people. Yeah. Could never do that at that time. Right. Um, even people that called my, like when I was living with my parents, like in school, like friends of their, of my parents would call and I would avoid the phone. Picking up the phone? Yeah. Out of, because of anxiety? I, yeah, because of the social anxiety of it. I moved to London to try to extract myself from the situation Mm -hmm. and also to put myself in a situation where I would be forced to kind of be pulled out of my shell because I knew I wouldn't do it if it wasn't some kind of drastic choice that I made. Mm. And I did it. And I worked at a talent agency in London for, I think, half a year or something. Yeah, Was answering phones, was working as an assistant in the office. It was very much like a forced social activity that I had no choice but to try to keep up with. Mm-hmm. Came back to Canada, very much changed for the better. Mm. And soon after getting back to Toronto, I had heard... MTV was doing these auditions. Right. And I thought, well, why not? Part of the new me. Wow. And so I went to the audition. And was that where we met? What are you? Uh, we met at the final round. Okay. So I had already had the job at that point, which I did not know. Yes. Nobody knew because mm-hmm. why would it not be overly complicated and like. <laughs> Right. Strange. So you got the job already. What do you remember from I, your audition? They were going to tape. When I first did my first audition, they were going to tape it mm-hmm. for a reality show about mm-hmm. like, 
the next VJ. My worst, literal worst nightmare. And I was mortified, Mm -hmm. but I went through it. And one of the things that they made us do was they handed us $100. My God, yes. That story. And told us to like spend it. Yes. But it wasn't properly like communicated. (laughs) Like, what are you spending it on? They kind of just said, we'll spend the money. And so people were coming back with like yoga mats and CDs like at the time. Donating to charity, yeah. And I, at the time, was working at a video store that was also kind of like a cable the company. The Rogers Video on Rogers Yonge Video. Street. I don't know what the reach is for this podcast no, in terms of like outside of Canada, but if if yeah. you happen to listen outside of Canada, it was a video. Was cable like, conglomerate yeah. that also was a video store. Mm-hmm. If we don't know what a video store is, that's… Mm. Um, then my demo is very young and I welcome that. <laughs> <laughs> so… I ended up going to my job because I was still working at the video store when I was auditioning for this thing. Right. And paid my cable bill <laughs> with the $100 and then bought some shampoo and some groceries and came back and said, like, you, this $100 is allowing me to live for another week. So thank you. Which is genius. Well, it was a risk in the sense that I thought, what could I do with this money that would both potentially give me a kind of edge uh-huh. in that the way that I spent it was somewhat creative? Right. But also, if it backfired on me, it worked in my favor. Because you paid your cable bill? Trust me, like, those cable bills were expensive, and I was not making that much of the No, you store. lived in a basement apartment. I did, yeah. yeah. I think I was making $350 every two and a half weeks. At the Rogers video. At the Rogers video. So— if you think of how much a cable bill was, that's saving a lot of money. I remember hearing, because I wasn't at that round of the auditions, I remember hearing this and feeling the same kind of rage jealousy that you felt about my threesome makeout. I felt about that. What a swing. Well, that's why it's like, ultimately, I think in those kinds of situations, you have to be unabashedly yourself. Absolutely. Because if they don't want you, yeah. and this took me a long time to learn once I actually got the job, mm-hmm. if they don't want you, then you're not the right fit for the job in the first place. So I kind of just thought, well, they're either going to buy it or they're not. And right. if they don't, then it works in my favor. And you're 21? I was 21, I think. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So cut to, if I can just, my POV for a moment. Mm. I send in a tape mm-hmm. cut by my now husband, father of my three mm-hmm. children. In Evan. New York City. That is where we met, Yes. Yeah. Said in the tape, get called in for this final audition. I'm so fucking nervous. Never done anything like this in my life. I'm like shaking in my seven low-rise bootcut denim. I remember those jeans. Who doesn't? Get there. It is, I don't know if you remember it like this, but it was like central casting for hot, cool 20-year-olds. It was like United Nations of aspiring VJs mm-hmm. gathered together, mm-hmm. and I instantly gravitated towards you because you were you and I were the only people who were not like the hunk with the wrist cuff or like <laughs> the sexy girl. I think I actually might have had an Adidas wrist cuff at the time. Absolutely. Or, or maybe bought the wrist cuff after getting the job, which is actually quite sad in terms of how much I was selling out. I think you were wearing stripes. I definitely had like a terry cloth. Cuff. No, for, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forearm band. Oh, it was my like a, God. It was like what tennis players used to wipe sweat wow. off their foreheads, except I just used it for to fashion. complement my like gap parachute pants. 
absolutely. And vest, maybe there was a vest, maybe the vest came There's later. There's definitely vest at, at, a, at vest. a point in time, yeah. So Dan's there for day one of the audition. Day two, they only call back a handful of people and Dan is not there. I'm devastated because I'm like the one person who I had to talk to is no longer here. Also, that guy was really funny, like, fuck this. And one of the people, I forget who, comes over to the group of remaining aspiring VJs and mm-hmm. says, you might notice that Dan uh, is no longer here does anyone think he deserved to be here today? And I was the only person who put up my hand. Well, first of all, let's talk about the toxicity of that <laughs> scenario. I had dropped out of school mm. to take this job. Mm. What good would asking that question have done? Well, I don't know because everyone else was like, yeah, he wasn't great. No. <laughs> and I had my hand up and I was like, I thought he was really funny. Mm. So I'm glad you were my one fan among a sea of people we ended up working with. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Hey, hey guys. Listen. What? You've done okay. To my credit, I was not good. Excuse me? When you began? When I began, and and let's be honest, through most of the— That is absolutely untrue. When we began— we were not good. We started the after show together, which we can explain was not ever really meant to be. The after show was an afterthought. Very much so, yeah. Like, can we talk about the Canadian content of it all for people who don't know? Mm-hmm. You had to have a certain amount of Canadian right. programming. Because MTV Canada was not a music licensed network. Yeah, we had a talk license, we had to create talk shows. Mm. And they were like, we'll just th- literally throw Dan and Jesse on live to talk mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. So do you remember our first episode? I d- do you we remember were- what we were wearing? No. Come on. T-shirts mm-hmm. that were handmade, mm-hmm. that were tea-stained mm-hmm. for some reason. <laughs> because we had handmade Team Lauren and Team Kristen. Maybe t-shirts for our first episode. And someone was like, you can't wear white on TV, which is a great myth of television. Yeah. So our idea, having come out of college, was to like tea-stain them like you might a college essay from the olden days. Yeah, like on Shakespeare or something. Like a papyrus. Mm -hmm. So we hand tea-stained our t-shirts and went on television (laughs) for the first time together live Wearing a brown, wasn't good tea-soaked shirt. Neither one of us was ever looking at the right camera. We would be looking. You know, I've never rewatched anything. Mm. Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I've never. You can't. I can't do it. Mm. It's really funny now. I, it used to be hard for me to watch it. Now it's quite funny. Mm. Like, we're finger-pointing to camera. Mm. We don't know mm-hmm. where to look. We're on the floor because we didn't. we're sitting on pillows on the floor. We're drinking real alcohol, which they gave us for the first but part that, of that I show. that, I think, not to, like, make it more of a thing than it is, you realize that that kind of freedom and that kind of scrappy approach to TV just doesn't happen anymore. Mm-mm. They don't make television now mm-hmm. unless it's absolutely fail-safe. Mm-hmm. And... What I've learned through that process and also through making Schitt's Creek was that when you have not a lot mm. to work with, it forces a level of creativity, a level of commitment, a level of enthusiasm, a level of strategy 
that you don't sometimes get when everything's handed to you on a silver platter. So So the fact that we were not only writing the shows, helping to produce the shows, helping to cut the tape for the shows, somehow organizing, like, I, I, there had to have been other things that we were oh, also we were doing. Everything. We were we like did our, booking I did my own flights hair. for like, oh my God. talent. Like, so what I realized after leaving that experience, there was not a day where I hosted TV where I ever felt comfortable doing it. But the experience of the knowledge of how to make something from every different perspective mm-hmm. is invaluable and has sh- helped to shape certainly my career. Because Schitt's Creek was very much the same thing. It was like working on a shoestring. Mm-hmm. Had to do a ton of jobs myself. Mm-hmm. You're just scrapping and fighting and trying to make sure that at least what you're doing is makes sense to you and is something that you feel good about. Mm-hmm. Even if it doesn't look exactly how you want it to look or even if it's not as polished as you want it to be. All you have at the end of the day is the closure of knowing, like, did I do the best job that I possibly could? And coming out of that experience, much like coming out of the MTV experience, when you are forced to kind of have eyes all over the production, mm-hmm. it only makes what you do after that much, not easier, but a little bit more smooth because I can talk to a costume department or a production design department or I've been in the edit bay for every single day of editing 80 episodes of TV. I know how to speak to departments now in ways that I think a lot of people who have just been like plopped into one slot would never have access to. Totally. So totally. it's hard, but in a way it's, I wouldn't have it any other way. I feel the exact same way. I feel so grateful that we were thrown out there. I swear to God, I think we had a team of four, mm-hmm. including us. Mm-hmm. Like the other show, MTV Live, had 40 people mm-hmm. maybe working on it, writers, everything. We had us mm-hmm. and two other people. We were writing our own shit. We were writing our mm-hmm. own jokes. Like the low budget nature of that mm-hmm. show forced us to learn how to do everything. Look at this cat eye. That's because our makeup mm-hmm. artist taught me how to do my own makeup because I had to do it a lot mm-hmm. of the time, you know? Like so many things. Yeah, I remember the first time I had a writer on a show and I was like, wait, you're hired to write mm-hmm. words for me? Mm-hmm. Never in my life. I'm in a writer's room right now on a show. And I mean, on Schitt's Creek, we were literally working out of like a we workspace. Right. I can't even wrap my mind around. The whole season, the whole, all season. We were working out of like eight foot by 10 foot rooms with no windows. Like anywhere that we could find that was cheap. Right. Because we couldn't afford proper rooms. Because the show didn't blow. I mean, we're jumping, but like until when you were making it, it wasn't as massive, massive, massive. I think it reached its peak, like, just as we finished making it. Wow. Which is the opposite of how television normally works. So you were still in that, doing it all. Yeah, I think that's, like, none of us have had, all of us who kind of went through the process of the success of the show. Yeah. Don't feel it because it happened while we were in quarantine at home. And isn't that a blessing that you— I would not want it— yeah. The, I First of all, again, social anxiety, like the fact that we were able to like do a lot of these award show things from home was great. Really? Yeah. But you had such good looks. I mean, I guess you got to still showcase them. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that it kind of happened and then the very next day, like it, it wasn't eventized in the way that I think it would be if we were to have done it 
in a huge, like, Kodak theater kind mm. of situation. So it feels like it happened, but it also feels like it was a joke. Like, it feels like it, we were punked a bit. And the Emmy goes to... Daniel Levy, Shit's Creek. <laughs> It's about to turn on me. I'm so sorry. Can I just tell you this? I'm sure I, I sent you like a thousand texts when that happened. I was so over, I was weeping watching you. <laughs> I did not expect, I was just like casually watching, mm. weeping watching you accept that award because, oh my God, because you were, you were like, you, you there was no, um, you weren't trying to be cool in that moment accepting that award. It was like stupid Dan from the Miss Shapes nightclub. Like, just you just were overcome and you just transformed into this like person that I know so well. And it was like watching, it was amazing. I just felt so, it was, uh, it was amazing to watch. I was so excited and so proud. And now I'm weeping, I'm <laughs> just openly crying. You know, I try to be as as like I'm a, I'm generally I err on the side of sincerity. Yeah. Over like Pretending. trying to be cool about totally. things. Totally. And it's hard sometimes because you think I know I'll get like roasted on the internet or I know that like anytime you're well-intentioned or like whatever it's always mm-hmm. kind of something about sincerity in our culture right now is like Granted, I think it's often weaponized into kind of toxic positivity and all of that sort of Mm -hmm. thing, which is a whole other conversation. But Mm -hmm. that night of the Emmys, like watching it back, I cringe because— Why? Because I'm such a— Yeah, you're such a a loser. Like in the best way. It was very genuine. Yes. We had—I thought that night, if we're lucky, Catherine might— or my dad might. Right. And you had been saying, by the way, to me for years, like, if Catherine doesn't win an Emmy for this show. I think the work that she was doing from day one deserved an Emmy. Right. And people just hadn't seen the show. Uh Uh-huh. So that was my hope. And I kind of just made the choice when we walked in, not that it was much of a choice because it was so reactive, Mm. that I wasn't going to play it cool. I didn't want that memory to be corrupted by me trying to be a version of something that the internet thought was cool. Mm, Do you know what I mean? Totally. Does that make any sense? Yes. I never expected this for myself. It was the most insane night of my life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you were so unabashedly you was my, what I felt such joy and pride as I was like, that's my friend, being mm. my friend on this, the, the biggest stage imaginable. Mm. And that's a really hard thing, I think, for a lot of people to do. And because if we can go back, you know, when we were at MTV, a lot of people thought we were a couple. Mm. LOL. Like, Mm -hmm. you would literally be shrieking about a Kelly Clarkson video in a jaunty vest. And Mm -hmm. people were like, but what a great couple they are. (laughs) But that was because you weren't fully comfortable being out. You were very much out in your own life, but on camera. Do you remember why? Uh, it was the same fear I think that everyone had at the time, which was, will it change my career? Mm. Will the opportunities be limited? Will I always wanted to act? Like, would that limit mm. my life as an actor? At the time, like, there wasn't a ton of out 
actors that were like thriving and drowning in work. That's so true. Um, and also I think the way that it was happening at the time where you had these kind of bloggers making it their job to out people mm-hmm. um, without their consent, mm-hmm. like it was some kind of news responsibility. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the sensitivity, I think, that we do now, at least, yeah. around people's coming out and the fact that it's an incredibly personal experience. I mean, I think we all knew it at the time. Mm-hmm. So when you do feel like there's this like hunt mm. for you know, to, like, out gay people of note in culture. Like, it almost makes you want to hide even more because you don't want to draw any attention to yourself. Mm. That said, like, our show philosophically was always in defense of, it was always in support of. Mm -hmm. It was, I never felt like I compromised any of the conversations we had. It was a very kind of, I felt very proud of the conversations we were having at the time. As Mm -hmm. silly as they might be, Mm -hmm. they were meaningful and they were, especially considering we were talking to kind of like young people. Yes. (laughs) Like, it was cool that we were able to kind of take the stances that we had and talk about the things that we did, which were all kind of things that you learn from and Mm -hmm. mistakes that you make. And that's all part of it. But um, no, it was not a comfortable part of my, it was, was not a comfortable time. Mm. Do you think, because I don't think I realized this at the time, but looking back, we've talked a little bit about it since. Do you think, because a lot of people don't know the cult, this was a different time. The culture and the environment that we were working in, mm-hmm. in that basement, mm-hmm. we were in a basement, mm-hmm. was very heteronormative, straight, mm-hmm. a lot of straight mm-hmm. men a lot of, like, jokes about tits. Mm-hmm. Did that environment, I mean, you must have, how did you feel? I, I was, I, I didn't feel particularly free. Yeah. You know, it was kind of, like, conform to the culture of, of the workplace mm-hmm. or sit it out. Mm-hmm. But it was never, like, let's pause what we're doing to listen to you. Right. Maybe you had a slightly different experience, but, you know, it was, an, it was, <sighs> And it's hard because I don't know whether, and maybe this is an apologist kind of perspective, mm-hmm. which maybe I shouldn't be having. Okay. But it was, I don't know whether I can place blame on people for it mm-hmm. because that's just how it was. Do I feel like I could have been taken care of a little bit better? Do I think there could have been more sensitivity around handling different types of people to make sure that everyone felt like they were a part of the team and like, weren't sort of a a stingy hangnail if Mm. they didn't like some of the conversations or didn't like parts of the culture or didn't like how aggressive it tended to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to name names, but I remember walking into work one day and someone asked me what I did on the weekend. Uh I said, well, I installed a dimmer switch in my apartment. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And that person said, wow, it's almost like you're a real man. And I thought, this isn't right. No. But at the time, it was not, there was no sensitivity. No. And there was nobody to go to. No. Because it was a different time. And that's, yes. And that's why I think I I only had that 
revelation recently. I thought only in the last few years have I thought to myself, I wonder what that was like for Dan. And I recently remembered a time for me where, just to illustrate the Mm -hmm. culture and what was acceptable, Mm -hmm. where for like a bit on MTV Live, I was in my dressing room. The dressing room I shared with eight other Mm -hmm. hosts. We had one small Mm -hmm. room that we all shared. Mm -hmm. I was in there getting ready, getting dressed, changing. And the door burst open, and it was a camera crew doing a big prank on me with Jacob Hogard of Headley (gasps) and possibly prison, now prison, fame, Uh butt naked, head to toe, runs in with cameras and starts humping me in the corner of the dressing room naked while I'm trying, like half trying to change with cameras. And it was like, ha, 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 what a hilarious prank from our guest. You should be so lucky you had a naked pop I don't even remember that. Because it was, you wouldn't have remembered it because it was a Tuesday. And I, at the time, was like, ah, ha, ha. I remember feeling a little uncomfortable, but also being like, well, that was funny, I guess. Mm-hmm. No one asked if they could, like, crazy. But I think that's why so much is changing now. The change in the conversation of, like, how important it is for mm-hmm. people to be comfortable and for conversations to happen. Like, it's a, it's a different, it's just a different Absolutely. time. Absolutely. But wait, can we then, do you have one like positive, bright, is there a memory or something that stands out for you from our time there, from all of our time together? Something that like pops? Imagine I said no. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Jesse, no. Well, let's talk more about the toxic masculinity. Okay. Um, No. I have one like that's that's, like ingrained. I want to know if you have the same one. Was it the Lauren Conrad after show one? Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty great. To lay the groundwork, yes, I think this memory we're both sharing is mm-hmm. we were doing this show, mm-hmm. which essentially is watch what happens live. Can we just take credit here live <laughs> on a, for creating an entire culture and format of television? I think if people were to do the research, they would realize that a lot of what we were doing in that format mm. informed a lot of the post-chat yeah. shows that exist Today, mm-hmm. the four of us in that basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a very different thing. We were working on the show, yeah. and finally, we heard that the cast of The Hills were going to come and do our show to fly to Toronto. Yeah, which was a huge get for us mm-hmm. at the time, considering again, it's four people in a basement in Toronto, and this show was like no, we didn't know that anyone was watching. exactly. There was no social media. We're wearing tea stained T shirts. Go on, and then we find out at one point halfway through the day that there's like a lineup of 3,000 people mm-hmm. outside of the building. Police have arrived with barricades and dogs. And it wrapped all the way down the street, all the way down another street, mm-hmm. all the way down another street, mm-hmm. all the way down another street. Mm-hmm. I remember a guy in the building, because the studio that we were working out of used to be an old concert hall. And I remember a guy who had worked there from the beginning saying like, we didn't get this for Bowie. <laughs> Which, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> um... But when I say it, it had very little to do with the hills. Yeah. For me, the fondness of that memory mm-hmm. came from a small team of people mm-hmm. building something that struck a chord with people. Granted, the show was very much in the cultural zeitgeist. The hills, they like, you know, Lauren Conrad was the most famous woman, woman in pop period. culture at the time. Mm-hmm. So it all made sense. But yeah. the fact that we were able to build that yeah. and have that happen. Yeah. 
of course, had to do with the hills, but was also a very kind of, it was a moment when I felt like all of this work that we're doing Mm -hmm. in the corner of this office, Mm -hmm. because nobody wanted to (laughs) deal with it, actually has struck a chord on a very big cultural level within Canada. And eventually, like, bled into the States as well. Right. But we had no idea. That's why that, to me, I have this memory of standing behind a curtain with 3,000 or however many thousands of people they packed into that building that night. Standing behind a curtain. Definitely a fire hazard. Absolutely illegal. With you— and at the end of the day, it was like, there's a, I remember there was a trash can where we were standing next to a trash can before mm-hmm. we walked out on stage. That's and I was very, like, that's, just that set. sums it up. Yeah, that sums it up. It's you, me, and a trash can. Uh-huh. Literally no one else. And I thought I was going to throw up in the trash can. I was so nervous. But I remember just being like, it's you and me. Mm. It's just you and me, mm-hmm. this stupid little thing. Mm-hmm. And here we are. And now there's 3,000 people mm-hmm. who have come to see us. Like, what, what on mm-hmm. earth? It's amazing because I bookend that experience with the polar opposite experience, which is us hosting the MTV Movie Awards red carpet. Yes, go on, please. Many, many years later. Yes. And this is when I knew how good you were and how bad I was. (laughs) What? We were hosting, we had somehow been asked to host the MTV Movie Awards red carpet. Yes. And I was so uncomfortable. I hated red carpets. I never felt comfortable on them. I requested at one point to never do them. I remember. That's why I had to do them all. Yeah. Yeah. So somehow, I guess because the opportunity was so big, we we went and we did Mm -hmm. this. And it was, from start to finish, the most uncomfortable, nerve-wracking, nauseating experience. And we wrapped the carpet. Yeah. And I remember just being so grateful for how good you were Oh. Because if I was left by myself on that carpet, it would have been an absolute disaster. But you were on it. You knew all the talking points. You, like, picked up the—anytime I was, like, awkwardly trying to, like, ask Sienna Miller a question, you would, like, got in with the right question and, like, got it back on track. And I remember the carpet ending Mm. and crying. That's how bad it was. I remember that. Wept. Burst into tears. And it was a moment that was very definitive for me because I realized I had been doing something Mm -hmm. that fortunately, because of our dynamic, was very comfortable and easy. Mm -hmm. But I knew in that moment that this was not my path. And I knew by contrast of how good you are at it, Mm. that some people are meant to do this and some people are not. I mean, it's amazing that you bring that up too because there were so many times where we were in such high-pressure situations doing these big shows at mansions in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. these little kids from a basement Mm -hmm. with no prior experience. And there were so many times when it was like, if I fucked up, you would have my back. And if you fucked up, I have Mm -hmm. your back. Like, we would switch. Sometimes I would know what you were supposed to say, and if you didn't say it, I would jump in and vice versa, like— there was such a trust. That's what I mean when I say, like, nobody else has shares this experience mm-hmm. but you. Do you have any other traumatic memories? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to discuss? Jesse, time, we don't have the time for the that. The time we forgot our clothes. I don't know how long this <laughs> podcast is, but I'll tell you one thing. What? That blanket question, do, <laughs> do you have any other traumatic memories? Unless this is a 10-part special. <laughs> 
Um, we start. You want to be specific? <laughs> we start with the time that we were told Spencer might shoot us from a balcony. Oh yeah, there's we that. go there. Mm. God, there's a lot. Okay, I know. I remember calling my mom at mm-hmm. that point because there was someone had come to us and said Spencer Pratt, the series finale, had shown up to the hotel. We yeah. were doing the series finale for the Hills. Yeah, and he'd shown up with a backpack, mm-hmm. and I remember this description very vividly. They said a backpack of rattling metal. And I think people were concerned. And I remember calling my mom and saying like, yeah, there's like a security situation. Like someone like, I don't know what it is. Like they're saying like, it might be a weapon. It might be a thing. And my mom said to me on the phone, you will not die hosting the Hills after show. (laughs) Dev Divine come with all the quotes. No offense to the Hills. No. But like, she's right. How you want to go. Okay, so you make season one of Schitt's Creek with your dad. Shortly after wrapping the first season, you come to be a bridesman in my wedding. That's true. I was like, where is this going? Like weeks after, mm-hmm. you're wearing a suit, that you, a white short suit mm-hmm. that you had put together. The I found out was white. Was, was like white. white. Yeah, all the bridesmaids were wearing white. All white. Yes. Cut to series finale of Schitt's Creek. Mm. You are walking down the aisle I, in yet another— The closest I've gotten to walking down the aisle. Well, that's what I'd uh, like to discuss. Because, again, that—yes. Okay. That was a misty moment for me because you're so good in that scene, and I really felt like I was watching my friend of 17 years mm. get married. Probably because that's the closest you're going to get. <laughs> Is it? Will I ever witness a— I don't know. Marriage isn't something—is ha- No, I don't— I don't, you don't know if it's something you want? I mean, I'm, I think if someone wanted it, mm. but I don't know. I'm not going to ask you to talk about your personal life on this hot <laughs> microphone. I think one of the other questions you asked was, any more deep trauma you want to share? <laughs> so why stop here? We're off to a great start yeah. on this premiere episode. Mm-hmm. Do you have Valentine's plans, Daniel Joseph? Jesse, <sighs> Valentine's what? Day is... I think the worst holiday <gasps> on the planet. Why? Because celebrate the person you're with every day. Well. Why do we need one day where, like, someone forgets a Valentine's gift and a relationship <laughs> falls apart? Because Hallmark has decided that Valentine's Day is a day when everyone needs to, like, show their love for each other. It's a romantic day. If you're in a relationship, I'm not right now, but, like, hopefully you have many romantic days. Sure. But let me tell you, when you have three kids, you barely have a romantic day Okay, many years. Are you asking for things for Valentine's Day? Like, what? No. You, I'm asking, like, are you going to be home that night? Or are you going to be at work till late? Like, what's... Well, there's no celebration when now. When is Valentine's Day? I believe it's Tuesday. So you're not in a relation. No, I'm not in a relationship. Um, I know your type. You have a type of person. I don't really have a type anymore. It's grown and evolved. It's either grown and evolved or, like, the standards have just... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Are they breathing? Are they available? They must be alive. Okay, yeah. Um, (laughs) Because I would like to briefly, just briefly, play a game. I'd like to fantasize about this perfect person. In a game I'd like to call Dan, I'd like to fantasize, which is Uh cleverly an acronym for DILF. Okay. So I'm going to list 
qualities. You simply choose your preference. Mm. Okay, so cue romantic music. Do you prefer taller than you or shorter than you? Doesn't matter. Older or younger? Doesn't matter. Facial hair or clean shaven? Depends on the person. Ooh, glasses or perfect vision? Doesn't matter. Works in show business or far from it? Ooh, I guess preferably far from it. Okay. Something different maybe from what you like. Yeah. Yeah. I've never dated an actor. Mm-hmm. I think that might be hard, mm-hmm. but who knows? There's still time. Blonde or brunette? I don't know. Really? I don't know. I didn't include redhead. <laughs> Exclusively redheads. Exclusively mm-hmm. redheads. Got it. Um, let's print that. Great style or doesn't care about style? Oh, doesn't. I don't care. Tattoos or no tattoos? I don't care. Six pack or no pack? Preferably kind of no pack. Mm. Homebody or adventurer? I'm a homebody, so I guess maybe an adventurer would be a nice change. But yes. I feel like adventurers tend to want adventurers. Right. Which would either, like, force me to leave the house or, like, end the relationship. <laughs> okay, lastly, loves Beyonce or loves Mariah? You want me to? Yeah, you have to choose. No, I absolutely will never choose. Okay. I would say as long as they're an enthusiast, generally speaking. Thank you. Then you'll accept. I gave you the worst answers to that quiz. Ding, 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 ding. Do you thank have someone you. for me at the end of this? No, just thank okay, you for well, letting that us. that feels misleading. No, I appreciate you letting all of the strangers listening fantasize. Yeah, 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 yeah. Together. All those strangers fantasize. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, I have to ask you about this because I've been dying to know. You're obviously a dog person. You're not necessarily a kid person. Like, I have mm-hmm. had many a children's birthday party that I have not invited you to out of mm. the kindness of my heart. Mm-hmm. But your sister has a baby. Yeah. So how do you feel as an uncle? I love the baby. Mm-hmm. Does it open something up? Like, is it rattle your ovaries? No. He's so cute mm. and sweet mm. and doesn't cry and doesn't take up too much space. <laughs> and he's <laughs> very... <laughs> um, describing... And also my sister is so good with him that you kind of don't notice it. But like, do I hate kids? No. I don't have, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No. I just don't have, I don't have the bones in my body. Four children. Like, I don't look at a kid and, like, light up. No. and that's- I look at a kid and I think, <sighs> be quiet. Yeah. And you know what? That's how you should be. That's you. You don't have, like, that's yeah. great. That's great. It's a beautiful thing You're about gonna be able to have this being an independent spirit. Couch as a result. I get to keep all my couches clean. Oh my god! It's just a gorgeous white <sighs> curtain that wouldn't exist in my house. A white curtain. Yeah. Didn't have anything white. Tea stained my curtains just to. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, it looks better on television. It's a lovely choice. Um, but I just want to ask you this because you and I have established that we were we were like quite unprofessional in certain times of our jobs Mm -hmm. because we were real fans. Mm -hmm. You know, like I could barely breathe when I met Mm -hmm. Hanson. Mm -hmm. You had like a sweaty palm when Adele walked into the same Mm -hmm. space as you. Have you developed coping mechanisms now that you are surrounded by quite famous people in certain settings? Or do you still revert to like a 2009 version? It's interesting. There have been these wonderful sort of full circle moments that I've been very fortunate to have. Funnily enough, winning an MTV Movie Award felt like the strangest, 
went from crying. Crying on that MTV red carpet. To like winning one. Unreal. <laughs> Which, to be perfectly honest, how? <laughs> um, how did that happen? Yeah, full circle. I did the Kelly Clarkson show. Yeah. Nearest and dearest know how much I love Kelly Clarkson. Mm-hmm. Always have. You mentioned earlier jobs. And actually, uh-huh. we have met like a few times before. We've met you interviewed a of me. Times. Yes, of course I did. You were is mm-hmm. MTV Canada. Yeah. So anyway. this ultimately is making me look like a total stalker creep. <laughs> I feel like I was very amped up when I when Kelly and I <laughs> were chatting. Relaxed. Okay. Relatively yeah. relaxed. Yeah. I think if you lose enthusiasm for like people that you love, oh. then where does it all... What's the point? You have to be an enthusiast. I don't, well, I don't think I'll ever be jaded by this industry. I'll always find people, places, things to love. Mm-hmm. Um, because this show is called Phone a Friend, I am contractually obligated to ask you, who is the most famous person in your phone? <laughs> don't look at me like I want to take it and call it. I just want to know the name. Who's the most famous person in my phone? Mm-hmm. Your little contacts. Well, maybe like I. Uh, there was a point during the pandemic <laughs> when I was um, messaging Kate Winslet. Ah. Um. What? Which was a very cool thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We. I ended up posting like a Q and A for her. Uh-huh. Um when her movie Ammonite came out and she was a big fan of Schitt's Creek. Oh my God. And so we found each other. I mean, that's been sort of the amazing thing about Schitt's Creek. The show is mm-hmm. that it's it's been able to introduce me to people that I love. Oh my God. Um she's incredible. Oh she's an incredible human being. So cool and grounded and oh. in it for the right reasons. And I guess that would be Somebody. That's big. That's really big. I was ex- that's, yeah. I didn't expect Oscar winning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's major. She's, well, that's I mean, major. <clears throat> I really cut to, she phones in. He does not have he, my number. I have no idea. I've never heard of this person. Yeah, because she's listening. She mm-hmm. actually is listening to this episode. Yeah. Um, I received a message a couple of years ago, I want to say a year or two mm-hmm. ago, and it was a weird, some, Idiot took a weird, grainy cell phone picture of you out for dinner with someone. It was on a gossip site. Everybody is speculating if you're dating. And I was like, how do you find I think that was the most disgusting thing. I know what you're talking about. The most disgusting thing. Yeah. How do you function as a person? Or like, how do you go on a date? How Or what, you know? How do you be that in the world? particularly weird because here's my problem with that particular site that I will not name no. because I think and granted at the end of the day anyone can do anything they want to have a website mm-hmm. that is exposing by way of gossip photos first of all unapproved mm-hmm. photos of people creepy invasive photos. Mm-hmm. violating photos of people mm-hmm. and then the people who share those photos have the freedom to be anonymous. Right. This is the problem. Right. So we are essentially promoting Mm -hmm. this culture of spying on people, of 
taking photos of people in private situations Mm -hmm. and celebrating that Mm -hmm. by not showing any consequence to the act. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. If those photos were credited, at the end of the day, it's not, it's like, it's not a big deal. I mean, it is. I think culturally it's, it's kind of a big deal in the sense that I think there should be accountability. Mm-hmm. If you want to be the person that takes a photo it's of someone at a restaurant, mm-hmm. own it. Yeah. Be the person that takes a photo of someone at a restaurant. Right. But that's more disgusting oh, God, than anything nobody else. would ever. And yet, they're allowed to, because the whole business wouldn't run mm-hmm. if people had to own up to the disgusting things that they do. So how do you move through the world? Oh, you don't care. You just don't. Well, fortunately, I'm not, I don't seek that out. Right. And I don't, it doesn't happen to me that often. Mm-hmm. That was weird. Weird. That was a weird thing. Weird. It's always strange when you hear about yourself on those kinds of places. Well, it's always those. strange if it affects you. If you have, if you're for a minute, like, get angry about it or whatever, it's frustrating because you want to just. I, at the end of the day, like, it. it didn't, bo- it didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't. It, yeah. I have a very nice life. Like, I'm very fortunate. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me is the culture of spying on people and being rewarded with anonymity. It is a weird version of that 2008 Perez Hilton energy we were talking about. It is a weird version of that coming back in a strange way. Did you know that when we first, like, did one episode, somebody wrote a blog or whatever it was, like a blog, whatever was the version of blogging back Mm -hmm. then— that was just dedicated to how bad I was and how I didn't deserve to be on television. And I wept, cried. I'm 22 years old, never mm-hmm. done this before. I've never in my life experienced that kind of like shame and drama from somebody else. From a stranger. From a complete stranger. I got off Twitter for that reason. Really? Yeah. Getting off Twitter was the best thing I've ever done. I can't believe you ever... Ha- I mean, We're on this Twitter? is how dumb I am. No, you were great on Twitter, but I can't believe you had negative energy... Well, for the most part, I didn't. Yeah. And it was reading one thing. Wow. That made me realize, oh, I don't have to be exposed to this. No. And it was more, I mean, more than that, I find Twitter to be a place where it's almost where people go to pick fights. Mm-hmm. It's like the Olympic Games for um, one-upping each other in terms of how much we know. Ugh. And everyone will find a hole in everyone's argument. And and in doing so, like, the discourse on Twitter is so counterproductive yeah. because it's not rooted in empathy. Yeah. It's rooted in catching someone out, shaming them publicly, mm. and then rallying people around that shame. Mm-hmm. And granted, this is, like, so general. But I just feel like conversation affects, I think, more effective change than pinning someone against a wall, grabbing a hundred people that you don't even know and throwing eggs at that person. (laughs) And that's what Twitter is to me. Wow. Not to mention the fact that like this, I read one stupid thing and and I'm sitting on, this is the absurdity of it. Yeah. I have thousands of letters from people who have come out of the closet. Their parents have accepted them. Mm -hmm. They, you know, got married to music that we played on the show. Like, Mm -hmm. I know that the show has done things for people in very meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. And then I read one stupid thing from someone on Twitter. Oh, yeah. And it makes me question all the work that I've done. 
Ugh. And it's one of those times, for the most part, I feel like I'm quite good at, com- and at ra- instantly rationalizing, like, I don't care about this person. Yeah. But in that moment, it was late at night. Oh, yeah. I was feeling particularly vulnerable. I read this tweet from someone. <laughs> I think it said something like, can we all admit Shit's Creek was overrated? <gasps> totally I've never fine. heard any. Okay, yeah. I've totally heard. fine. But in the moment, I thought, it wasn't even about the show. Mm. It was about the fact that we as a culture mm-hmm. feel so comfortable, A, tearing something down. Yeah. B, tearing something down publicly. Yeah. And then C, tearing something down publicly while asking others to join them. To join. Mm. So not only are what is what you're saying not positive, not constructive, not helping anybody or anything, but you're also now rallying mm-hmm. other people mm-hmm. to share in your hatred. Yeah. And I think symbolically, mm-hmm. that is so sad. Mm-hmm. It didn't make me angry. It didn't make me, I felt obviously like odd. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weird reaction, but yeah. I felt more than anything else, I felt sad wow. for the fact that we're in a culture where this is commonplace. Totally. And that person who sent that tweet probably didn't even think anything of it. No. Which is even more sad. And by the way, you're one of the most powerful people to receive a tweet like that. Imagine all the other people that and kids yeah. who see who I'm at least equipped with like a nice life. And like <laughs> fortunately, like I don't have dependencies. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm a I'm a pretty good person. I don't have mm-hmm. I'm not like on the hairy edge of like falling apart, no, which a lot of people in never spoke to <laughs> cigarette. A lot of people in entertainment, when you're put on a pedestal. Yeah. It's why people tend to destabilize. It's why people tend to falter mm-hmm. because it's hard to be mentally equipped to take on everything that people expect from you mm-hmm. and what I think entertainment tends to do to people, which is like, you know, you're perfect. Everything you say has to be perfect. Yeah. And if you say one thing that's not perfect, mm-hmm. then how dare you? Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine it. I mean, that's so interesting to me because I... I don't know. I, I I just feel grateful that you and I were never, there was no Twitter when we started. I don't think I would have, I don't think I'd be here no. if there were social media when we were coming yeah. up. So much about your life has changed since the success of Schitt's Creek. I would like to imagine that the biggest change is you can't send a text to Kate, to anybody, without like pulling up a GIF and your face pops up. You are a living, mm. breathing human meme. Have you ever sent a text with your face in it? Don't lie to me. No. Are there any I've sent one with Annie's face in it. Oh, that's fun. Are there any gifts or memes that you're like, I really would like that to be removed from the internet forever that is not flattering? Well, most of the faces (laughs) I made in my show were not flattering. I mean... You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like a sexy role where, like, I came out of it drowning in dates. Mm -hmm. Um... So, so none of that. No, yeah. I really love the fact that people use the use the memes and the gifs and the gifs, gifs for, you know, for eternity. For eternity, yeah. I literally was at the Walmart. Thank you. <laughs> and there were uh-huh. Shit's Creek socks at the checkout in 2023. Mm-hmm. The merch. What Shit's merch would I find in your home if I did a if I did a search? 
<clears throat> well, I, I, I quality control every piece of merchandise still. Of course. That's why the Rose Apothecary shit is so cute. Yeah. It's like, you gotta, you, you have to. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, it gets a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the Monopoly game. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The uh, book. Uh-huh. I think that's it. Really? Yeah. No totes? No pins? I gave all the totes away. Hmm. Oh, I have a wine bottle and some stationery from the Rose Apothecary, which I took when we wrapped the show. That's nice. Yeah, it's on my shelf. That's lovely. Um, Obviously, anybody who knows you knows that you are aggressive about brunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're like a brunch. Yeah, I made a show about my love for it. Well, let's discuss the big brunch, mm-hmm. I would like to know if you made that show to celebrate these chefs and everything they're doing to uplift their communities, or did you make it so you could eat brunch for eight weeks, at, uh, eight <laughs> episodes? Well, funnily enough, it came to me in a dream. Okay. And I woke up in the middle of the night and wrote it down, oh the God. premise for the show. It came out of the pandemic, and a lot of my friends work in food, mm-hmm. and it was one of the industries that was hit pretty hard. Things yeah. were closing all the time, and the industry was changing, and chefs— People who work with food are some of the most, like, amazing people I know. And at the time, I thought, well, how can I showcase the beauty of these people and how important the culinary arts is to community building? What if we did a cooking competition show where the show is just as much about talking about their lives and what these people are doing for their communities by way of food as it is a competition? What I didn't expect at the time, because... The show got greenlit. We knew we were going to make it. And then I had this kind of crisis of of ego, I guess, where I thought, well, is this the next step in my career? Like, is hosting oh, a cooking competition something that I, is that what people are going to expect from me? Like, is that a weird thing? Hmm. Again, ego. Mm-hmm. Should have just thrown it out. We started making the show, and those chefs were together mm-hmm. rebuilt my faith in people. Wow. And it was the height of the pandemic and I felt lost Mm -hmm. and sad Mm -hmm. and politics was nuts. Mm -hmm. And I think some things come into your life to help you in ways that you could have never foreseen. Wow. And this show did that for me. Mm. And the fact that there was ever a point where I let my ego creep into my thought process and say like, well, is this the right move for my career? Like, fuck your career. Like, these are people who are going to open your eyes to humanity at its yeah. finest. That's how people have been reacting to the show. It's, like, deeply moving. Yeah. It was recently announced that you are writing, directing, starring in <laughs> your first feature film. Mm-hmm. I am so excited also having such violent night sweats for you. I am shissing myself <laughs> just thinking about it's it. It's a very intense thing. I love a good challenge. Okay. The idea came to me quite organically. Mm-hmm. It's called Good Grief. It's called Good Grief. Um, my grandmother had passed away. My dog had passed away. I was confused about the feelings that I had for them. Mm-hmm. I was constantly asking myself, like, why wasn't I feeling more? Hmm. And I came to this realization that I feel like the pandemic, what it did was 
it kind of, in a way, like democratized grief in the sense that it was all around us. It was so easily accessible that I didn't quite know where my grief fit into the collective grief that I was experiencing. Oh, that's so interesting. It was like a very strange time. Yeah. And we were surrounded by death, frankly. And, and anything that you were experiencing personally, that what it was always, I feel like it was sort of like a, well, it's not as important. Exactly. As, yeah. It kind of, everyone's singular experiences were kind of weighed against yeah. these headlines of like hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. passing away. And you thought, I just, I think my own feelings got lost along the way. Yeah. And this movie was my attempt to reconcile that. Oh, my God. And it has nothing to do with my dog or my grandmother, but it does have everything to do with the examination of what grief means to people and is there a correct way to grieve. Wow. And so it's a funny drama Mm -hmm. about that. And I think because it's so personal, it never felt... I was never intimidated because it really felt like something I had to say. Huh. So it wasn't, I've really tried to keep the industry side out of it as much as I can. And considering making a movie is like both deeply creative and also a business. Yeah. I've tried my best to protect myself from the business side of things and really focus on telling the story as singularly and as thoughtfully as I possibly can. And so I think in that regard... I didn't have the time or the space to overthink it. Mm. And I just need to get it out there. Oh, my God. And hope that people like it. When is it coming out? Do we, Do you know? I don't know. Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, um, it's still very early days of putting it all together, but you're, I'm here. You're here. Telling, you're telling here. the tale. You live to tell the tale. Uh, well, I mean, we're still going. I have, oh. I have many months more to edit. So you are my first guest on my debut podcast. Thrilled to be here. Mm -hmm. So I want to end this conversation by playing a rousing game that I am calling First Trap. Okay. Which is like my five-year-old saying, Mm -hmm. trying to say thirst trap. Yeah, Yeah. you get it. Okay. I'm going to go through a rapid list of firsts. You have to tell me yours. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. First trap. First job. I worked in a bakery. First celebrity crush. (gasps) Um... I don't know. Hold on. First celebrity crush. Mm-hmm. Might have been like River Phoenix. Oh. Many of the listeners are going to have to Google who that is. <laughs> or that old. Uh, first kiss. Where, when? Would have been in high school. Mm. Um, Would have been in high school. First car. Uh, well, it was, I drove my family's Toyota Corolla. Sexy. Yeah. Okay. First Funnily pet. enough, uh-huh. my sister got into a huge accident uh-huh. on the freeway in that Toyota Corolla, flipped the car on the freeway, everyone in the car unharmed. What? This is not an ad for Toyota Corollas. Absolutely just, not. That car did a lot of good. Protected us. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was in a devastating car accident in a Toyota Prius. Toyota, please sponsor this podcast. <laughs> saved, saved me and my family's life. Wow. All right. First concert. Alanis Morissette. Ooh. First time you got drunk. 
<laughs> with me, apparently. Probably. Yeah. First time I got drunk was, yes, I know exactly where I was. Oh. Um, it was the, there. it was a pub up the street from yeah. where we were working. Yeah. And I had, I think, three pints of beer and couldn't walk. <laughs> and it was the first time I'd ever been drunk. Really? Wow. That's incredible. And then we had many, like, we would go to that pub a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, first expensive garment. It was a Rick Owens leather jacket that I bought when we were at MTV. I remember. I was um, eating a lot of lean cuisines at the time. <laughs> so and was very unhealthily thin. So thin. Funnily enough, that was way out of my budget. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, full circle moment on that jacket. Mm-hmm. Wore it in the pilot episode of Shit's Creek. Come on. That was your actual jacket? We arrived in Schitt's Creek yeah. for the first time and I'm wearing that jacket. Wow. That just goes down to my mentality of like, <laughs> I guess. W- w- like dollars per wear. Yeah. Well, but also you were making shits and you were like, gotta pull my own stuff. Oh, yeah. You're piecing it all together. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I love that. I remember when you got that Rick Owens jacket. First celebrity interview. Do you remember? Were you waiting? Inter- I was too traumatized. <laughs> first, first paparazzi shot. Do you remember? Yes. It was us, also intoxicated, holding Lauren Conrad, getting out of a car somewhere after a night out after a show, and we were paparazzi. That was your first paparazzi shot. You don't remember that? Not really, no. Really? No. I don't feel like I'm a paparazzi favorite. No, but— They're like, let's watch him eat a bagel. Like, it's not— (laughs) I'm not, I'm not like giving drama yeah. during the pandemic. I guess because there was no other news, paparazzi were doing a lot of like people walking their dogs. Yeah. I, hello. And I was paparazzied. Stop. Walking my dog, Redmond. And the funny thing about this, like sweet thing, God rest his soul, always knew where the cameras were. Oh. I, of course, had no idea that I was being photographed at all. Oh. All the photos have Redmond staring down the barrel of the lens, <gasps> looking gorgeous. Stunning. And I'm like, eh, on the phone. Oh, my God. Mm. Now I'm ha- going to have to mm. Google and look at those. That's, yeah. the, what, a, what an angel. What an angel, that little guy. No, really. I mean, mm. I'm fond of a redhead. Um, okay, first award. Was not with me. <laughs> We were, we were nominated for a few. Don't you remember every year we would go and lose hard? Yeah. First award was probably, uh, I guess, a Canadian Screen Award. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know what? Actually, funnily enough, when you were living in Toronto shooting shits, uh-huh. you had a beautiful condo that I stayed in. You did. Because I was shooting my show the winter. You were shooting in the summer. So I stayed in your condo. And you had your early Canadian Screen Awards on display. And when I was settling in, I was like, oh, I should probably put those away. And then I was like, and on second thought, I'll just turn them around and leave them here. So if anyone comes in, they might think they're mine. (laughs) (laughs) So I I proudly displayed that first award. I'm thrilled. Uh Uh-huh. Finally, first time together, catching up in a public forum with me. How did it feel? Terrible. I... (laughs) No, it was great. So nice to see you. We never get to see each other. Oh my God, it's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. So much to unpack. 
so much to talk about. I don't know. What am I doing? I know, and Oprah, we're holding hands. Holding hands. Like it's like this an is, Oprah and Gail moment. No, yeah. really. I really want to say thank you so much. You're so welcome. It means the world to me to have you as my first guest. <laughs> guest. Uh-huh. Everyone was like, I again. knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, and After I'm just this so podcast, They consummated love for each other <laughs> in one of the most uncomfortable lovemaking sessions ever <laughs> not recorded. on audio. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Thank you, Dee. Thank you for having me. Love you forever. Love you. Mm-hmm. And now you're supposed to say bye like it's a oh, phone okay. call. Uh, I'm okay. hanging up now. Okay, bye. Great call. Click. Dan Levy! Yes! His movie Good Grief is on Netflix January 5th. And that's it. That's our first mid-season banger. See, we just in, out, updates, shocking revelations, great conversations. It's a banger. You know what I mean? And I hope these little mini episodes will tide you over until we launch season two. I know they will tide me over because I have missed you so deeply, phonies. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, You know, keep the voicemails coming too. I'll listen to those and answer those in these mid-season bangers. And in the meantime, I've got to slip on a cleavage-bearing sequin gown and pop on my hearing aids because Teresa and Gary are getting married in the first ever televised golden wedding. And I can't... Cannot wait. Because you know Gary is going to deliver those vows very slowly, very earnestly. He is not going to break eye contact and probably by the end of it through heaving tears. Okay, those are my predictions. Footnote, I also predict they'll break up in five months. But, you know, that's cynical. Let's all watch this and believe that they are going to be married and happy forever at least for the remaining 30 years of their lives. Have a great start to the year, phonies. I'm so happy to be back with you. Talk next week. Okay, perfect. Bye. Phone the Friend was created by our mommy, Jessie Crookson. The executive producers are Jessie Crookson and Jason Yanba. The technical producer is Rob Perrot. The amazing theme song and sexy interludes are by Jay Melanowski from Badwin Soundclash. Phone a Friend is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Credits are by us, Ray Gatika and Real Gatika. We're her kids. That's crazy, right? Wow, you're still listening? Okay, see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.